Today we come to, in our study, we're doing the history of redemption. If you've been with us, if you're here for the first time, if you're visiting, uh, so we're ending the New Te- the Old Testament, and so next week we'll begin the New Testament. So today we're in the final book of the Old Testament, written by uh, the only Italian prophet, Malachi. Just kidding. It's pronounced Malachi, okay? It's a, if, if you, you can find it really easy in your Bible. Just go to the end of the Old Testament, and it's the last book. Uh, it, it, it's the, Malachi, I'm going to say Malachi uh, several times. This is going to be my problem. Uh, but Malachi is, in Hebrew, it means uh, the messenger of the Lord speaks. And the prophet Malachi speaks around 430 B.C., It's not until John the Baptist begins his ministry in uh, 29 AD, over 400 years later, that God will again speak to his people. This is is what we call the intertestinal period. It's like 400 plus years of, of silence, no prophets from God. So what we find in Malachi is really significant. It brings the Old Testament to a conclusion and it marks really a 1600 year, uh, 1600 years since God birthed the nation of Israel by calling its father Abraham. Remember, if you've been with us or if you read Genesis, remember back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. God said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is, uh, we call it the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. And as we've read through the Old Testament, we've seen these promises uh, partially, I would say, fulfilled. Israel was given the promised land, if you remember. They became a great nation with a great name. And there were times when they, as a people, were a blessing to the nation surrounding them. So we've seen some positives as we've walked through Israel's 1,600-year history. 1,600 years from Abraham to to Malachi, just to be clear. But we've also seen a people, uh, I think mostly we've seen a people, who continually rejected and rebelled against God over and over falling into idolatry and immorality. Over and over, God pouring out His judgment on them, punishing them, disciplining them for their sin. Until finally, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom, remember after King Solomon, the the kingdom divided, there was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was totally defeated by the Assyrian Empire. No more northern kingdom. And less than 100 years later, The southern kingdom falls to the Babylonian empire. Israel lost their land, their nation, and their name. Everything that had been promised, uh, God had promised Abraham. But God does not allow them. He doesn't let them be utterly destroyed. They're still his people. Instead, many are taken into exile. We studied some of those, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And after 70 years of exile... God allows them to begin returning. They sort of return in waves, but the first uh, happens about 70 years in exile. They begin returning to the land. And in many ways, in many ways, while in exile, they had, they had changed. Some change had taken place. Up until their return, under the leadership of Zerubbabel, 
they, uh, when they returned, they rebuilt the temple, which was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. This is in Jerusalem in the south. Now, it took them some time to get it done. As Tom pointed out last week, they had to consider their ways. They had to make, get their priorities straight. But in 515 B.C., the temple was completed. And in 445 B.C., 70 years later, after more people returned to the land, under the leadership of a guy named Nehemiah, they begin to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Again, they face opposition, setbacks, but the walls are finally finished. It takes about 13 years, 432 B.C. So the temple and the walls have been rebuilt. And there's a revival in the land. It looks like Israel as a people are getting it together, really. In Nehemiah chapter 8, if you read Nehemiah, uh, the, uh, the priest Ezra reads the book of the law to the people, and all the people fall on their faces and they worship God. They see God's greatness. They, they see their sinfulness. They confess their sins. They rejoice over God's mercy. And in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, they say, because of all this, We make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They make this this special covenant with God, and they seal it. They write their names, and and the essence of this covenant is found in chapter 10. Let me read verses 10 through 33. They promise, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or, or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and, and the exaction of every debt. We also take ourselves to take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the regular grain offerings, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. So some, you might recognize some of the things they vow to. They're part of the law. Other things, they're, they're just adding some extra things we're going to do. In this covenant, they promise really four basic things. First, not to intermarry with any of the pagan peoples around them. In the, there are some still in the land and their surrounding nations. Second, to keep the Sabbath and all that means. Third, to give generously to the work of the Lord. And fourth, to offer proper sacrifices, to, to sacrifice in this temple that's been rebuilt. That's what they say they're going to do in the book of Nehemiah. Now, Malachi is written during this same time, during the time of Nehemiah. Chronologically, Nehemiah, even though it occurred, uh, occurs way back in your, in your books in the Bible, it's sort of the historical books are first, Chronologi- I mean, chronologically, Nehemiah is the last historical book of the Old Testament. And Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament uh, were a man-centered fairy tale, then its last book, Malachi, would surely conclude with, and they lived happily ever after. It would tell how Israel finally overcame their sin and their suffering and their struggles and went on to, to keep their covenant, keep the law, and pursue relationship with God. But the Old Testament is not a man-centered fairy tale. It's a God-centered, true history of redemption. And so what we find as Malachi begins the conclusion of the Old Testament is a reinforcement of foundational truths we've seen throughout the, 
Old Testament. Foundational truths about God and foundational truths about us. And by us, I mean Israel, I mean you, I mean me, I mean everyone in between. So let's begin with uh, and see what Malachi has to reinforce truths about us. Now the statement, uh, truth hurts, is going to be really applicable here. Because the first truth that Malachi reinforces is that we are sinners. If you've ever read the Bible, or if you've ever turned on the news, if you've ever examined your own heart, then this first truth does not come as a shock to you. From the fall in Genesis chapter 3, through the book of Malachi, through the New Testament, all the way to present day, there are a few truths that are clearer, clearer demonstrated in our world. That sin, that disobedience to God, that doing the wrong thing when we know what the right thing to do is, is part of who we are. It's seen in what we do. It's seen first when we sin against God. Remember, the people are, are back in the land. Uh, the temple, the walls are rebuilt. They've repented. They've made a covenant with God. Seems like they're on a, a good track. But in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, God says to them, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? The people led by the priests are not honoring or fearing uh, their master, their heavenly father. Instead, they're despising his name. How? goes on to, to say, by offering polluted sacrifices. Remember, they promised they would make proper sacrifices. They would, they would sacrifice to the Lord who had brought them back into their land. But in verse 8 and 9, God says, You despise my name when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? They were, they were taking their defective, their lame and their blind and their sick animals, the ones they couldn't use, the ones they wouldn't give to anyone else. They wouldn't, certainly wouldn't give it to their governor, their leader, and they were offering them to the Lord. And God says, this is evil. And in verse 10, he says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept any offering from your hand. God will not accept these polluted sacrifices because Because here's the truth, people. God requires our best. Write that down if you're writing anything down. God requires our best. In fact, uh, they they weren't giving their, their best. They weren't giving their second best, their third best. In fact, they were giving their worst. By their religious act of supposed worship, they were dishonoring and despising God's name. And there's more. Remember, they, they had promised to give generously to the work of the Lord in his temple. But in chapter 3, verse 8 of Malachi, God says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. The people had promised 
to give generously, but they, but they, the whole nation is holding back even, even what belongs to the Lord, even what the law has commanded, the tenth, the tithe, it's the Lord's. They're robbing God. They're not only not living up to their covenant to give generously, they're not even obeying the law by giving their tithe. They're showing a total lack of respect for the Lord. They're despising and robbing His name. And what I want us to notice this is why Malachi is, is really applicable to us. Because uh, they're doing this all under the guise of religion. They, were, they weren't overtly rebelling against God. They weren't pursuing... Uh, I mean, we've read this whole uh, Old Testament, and what, is, what are the children of Israel doing over and over again? They're following after other gods. They're going after the Baals and the Asterisks and the gods of the Canaanites. They're not doing that anymore. They're pursuing and sacrifice. They're not pursuing and sacrificing to foreign gods. They were at least sacrificing. They were at least giving a, a, a little. So they were giving. They just weren't giving the full tithe. But so what's the problem? What I want us to see and I want us to know and understand and apply is that God says it's not good enough. Your half-hearted efforts at religion are, in fact, an evil abomination to the Lord. I'm the God of heaven and earth. I'm your creator and sustainer. I'm your father, your king. I have in love and grace and mercy and forgiveness allowed you to return to your land, to raise crops, to raise herds. And you have the audacity to bring me the worst of those flocks, to rob me of what is rightfully mine, of what I gave you in the first place. Israel was going through the motions of religion, giving as little as possible to the Lord. And you have to see, you have to see, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, we do the same thing. We are half-hearted in what we give the Lord. We ask ourselves, Uh, at least subconsciously, uh, what's the least I can do? What's the least I can give? And still be religious enough. Still be okay with God. How often or how little do I have to read His Word? How long is long enough to pray? How many times a month must I go to church? How often do I have to volunteer for something? How little can I give of my time and my talent and my treasures and still be all right? And the thing is, if you're asking those kind of questions, if you're living that kind of life, if you're half-hearted with your worship and your service and your giving and your relationship with God, then you're despising His name. You're robbing Him. You're sinning against Him. And don't for a moment, because this is what we do, don't for a moment try to hide behind His grace and His mercy uh, what I mean is, if you're saying things like, well, it doesn't, it's not that big a deal. God will forgive me anyway. Isn't he a God of grace and love and mercy? God will forgive me. If that's what you're thinking, then brothers and sisters, you're in a very dangerous place. You're revealing the fact that your relationship with God, if it exists at all, it's just half-hearted. And God says to you and to me, it's not good enough. I am the God of heaven and earth. I am the creator and sustainer of you. I am your father 
and your king, and I, I sent my son to die in your place to purchase eternal life for you. And you have the audacity to ask, what's the least I can do? When you should be asking, what is the most I can do and give and be for my master and my loving heavenly father? So be warned. Giving God anything less than your best is sin. It's abomination. It's evil in His sight. And sinning against God, the Bible teaches, results in our second point under the fact that we are sinners. Uh, we sin against one another. It doesn't stop with God. It continues on. Our, our vertical, vertical, right? Our vertical sins against God lead to horizontal sins against one another. Malachi 2, chapter 10, I mean 2, verse 10, we read, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? If God's our Father, if we're brothers and sisters, then why are we faithless? Why do we sin against one another? How were they faithless? In Malachi, in, in the next verse, verse 11, we read, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. They broke their promise not to intermarry with the pagan peoples. And in so doing, they profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. They were sinning against God. And this led them to sin against one another, specifically sins against their own wives. Chapter 2, verse 14, Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, or he defiles his character. They prove their sinfulness by divorcing their wives. Uh, they divorce their wives to marry uh, for the daughters of foreign gods. That's not all. So they're faithless to the one that should be closest to them. That's not all. Chapter 3, verse 5, God says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, uh, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. They were practicing sorcery, witchcraft, participating in adulterous relationships. They were lying and cheating and oppressing one another. They oppressed their employees. They oppressed the widows. They oppressed the orphans. They oppressed the sojourners or foreigners in the land. And in so doing, they proved that they did not fear the Lord of hosts. They had no respect for God. They sinned against God, and that led them to sin against one another. Sin against people is always born in a heart that neglects worship of God that neglects their relationship with God. So, as the Old Testament comes to a close, this is the state uh, we find the descendants of Abraham in. They returned to the land, they experienced some revival, they made some uh, promises, some, a covenant with the Lord. They'd said to the Lord, we'll, we'll do better next time. You know, they know their history. They know why they were in exile. And they come back and they say, we, we got to do better. We got to do better than our fathers. Uh, and yet we find them in the end 
still enslaved to their sin. Now, does that sound familiar at all? Be honest. Because in many ways, I think it pictures our lives. Have we not all said at one time, I need to do better here. I need to be a better husband, a better wife, a better parent. I need to control my temper. I need to stop looking at those images on the internet. I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I need to try harder. God, I promise I'll do better. And for a while, we can experience some victory, uh, some revival. There are times when we overcome actually certain external sins for long periods of time, sometimes even entirely. We see this illustrated in, in Israel. Prior to the exile, the main sin the people dealt with was, if you've been with us, this blatant idolatry. Uh, going after, worshiping foreign gods. But after they return to the land, they as a people are no longer pursuing other gods. And in fact, will not pursue other gods. Instead, though, they're despising the Lord with defective offerings. They're going to temple, despising God with defective offerings. Robbing God by not giving their full tithe. Divorcing their wives. Marrying foreigners. Oppressing one another at every turn. They've overcome one sin but replaced it with other, less blatant, just as devastating sins. Does that sound familiar to anyone? We commit to stop a a certain sin in our lives, and in time we either return to it or replace it with some uh, less blatant, more acceptable sin, especially if we're in the church, right? We mature. We're able to control our external angry outbursts Because those are uh, kind of embarrassing. But we still have jealousy, hatred in our hearts. So our sinful outward outward anger morphs into, oh, little snide remarks. Cutting jokes at someone else's expense. Gossip. Even lies about people. Why? Because the reality is, the reality in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, it teaches us, and the reality in our own lives is that We are sinners. We're sinners by nature, and we sin by action. Sin is in our heart, and it comes out in what we do. And maybe you're thinking, "Uh, thanks so much, Pastor, for telling me what I already know. Maybe you should tell me what I should do about it. What's the plan? What's the application here? What can I do? And the answer is, there's absolutely nothing you can do for yourself. You may be able to overcome some certain external sins. You may become, uh, uh, be, you may be able to uh, hide your sin. You may be able to look more religious. But you will never overcome being a sinner. It's like a game of whack-a-mole. As one goes down, the other ones keep popping up, and you can't stop. They keep coming up. You can't stop yourself from being a sinner any more than you can stop yourself from being a human. It's who you are. It's in your nature. And if that depresses you, then I'm, I'm sorry. Well, not really. Because we need to get this truth. We need to understand that no matter how religious we think we are, we are sinners and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, we can do about it. 
But notice I didn't say, nothing can be done about it. Because something or someone, I, I should say, someone can do something about it. It's just not you. You're not the one. If we're to overcome the sin in our lives, then we need someone who can supernaturally, from the inside, change who we are. So the second truth about us flows from the first. We are sinners, therefore we need a Savior. Prophesying of of one who will come, Malachi chapter 3 verse 3 says, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. He, who's He? Well, we know He's Jesus. He's the someone who will do the work. He's the refiner. He's the purifier of his sinful people. He's the one who who will deal with our sins. And not only our sins. You know, we, we tend to think Jesus came so our sins could be forgiven. No, Jesus came that our sin nature can be dealt with. Yes, our sins are forgiven. But he came to deal with our sin nature. We don't need new laws. We need new life. We don't need to be better. We need to be born again. We don't need a religious system. We don't need an eightfold path to follow. We don't need a set of rituals to partake in. We don't need a, a plan to pray a certain number of times uh, uh, a certain, in a certain direction. We don't need to wash ourselves in a specific river. We don't need to do this or that. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. But the danger is, the danger is that we make Christianity just another religious system like the rest. Start by repeating this prayer. Then get dunked in some water. Then go to church, read your Bible and pray. Raise a nice, decent family and you're good. And that's good enough. Wrong. Reality is, you can do all sorts of, all this religious activity. You can say the sinner's prayer every chance you get. You can get dunked numerous times. You can be in church every Sunday and live the most outwardly decent, good, moral, upstanding life. But you're still a sinner. And the danger of making Christianity a religious system is that you're deceived. You're deceived into thinking, uh, okay, this is taking care of me, me doing these things. This is taking care of my sin. This is taking care of, you know, I'm changing, right? When in reality, we need to be born again. We need a, a new heart, a new life. You and I need Jesus Christ to save us from our sin and transform our lives. And that's the truth about us. Now let's look at the truth about God. There are many truths about God that we've seen as we've studied the Old Testament. Truths about His holiness and His faithfulness, His mercy, His grace, His, His, His sovereignty, His power, His wrath, His justice, and more. But in, the, in, the light, in light of the truth about us, that we are sinners in need of a Savior, these two foundational truths that we're going to look at about God are, are things that we really need to understand. Malachi opens his book with the first uh, ever surprising to me truth. Even though we are sinners in rebellion against God, despising and robbing Him, God loves His people. 
Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Because of their sin, the people of God are again experiencing some difficulty in the land. This is during the time of Malachi. A little famine, crop failure, things aren't going like they want. And, so, and they're saying, uh, God, do you really love us anymore? Isn't that what we do? Anytime difficulty comes in our life, God, are you there? Do you really love me? Because if you love me, everything would be perfect. And God points them back to their father, Jacob. Jacob, if you remember, 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So the name Jacob is synonymous with the people of God, with God's people, the nation Israel. Esau was Jacob's twin brother. And God says, I loved or really uh, accepted Jacob and hated or rejected Esau. Why did God love Jacob? Why does God love you? Why does he love me? Well, that, my friends, is possibly the greatest mystery of all uh, redemptive history. So I can't answer that question. It's, It's God's secret to keep. But what I can say is this. After 1,600 years of Israel's history what we've seen from Abraham to Malachi, what we've seen so far. And coming to this last book of the Old Testament and seeing Jacob, Israel, despising and robbing the Lord, sinning against God, sinning against one another, it has to be clear that God didn't choose Jacob or over Esau because Jacob was somehow worthy or that Jacob would somehow become worthy. He didn't love Jacob because eventually Jacob would love him. In fact, if we go to 400 years plus, let's just go 400 years plus. For Malachi, 400 plus years into the future, look at Jacob at the time of Christ. Israel. It's what we're going to be looking at. We're coming to the New Testament next week. This is what we're going to see. What do we see in the New Testament? Well, we don't see the pursuit of other gods. The the Jews are not struggling with worshiping the Roman gods. Apollo and Zeus and those guys, Roman Greek gods. We don't see them marrying foreign wives. That doesn't, isn't really happening. They aren't sacrificing defective animals, as far as I know. They're certainly keeping the Sabbath. If you read the New Testament, that's a big deal. They become a much more religious people. So everything was awesome, right? Wrong. Because what we do see is Pharisees and Sadducees and legalism and hypocrisy turning the temple into a den of robbers. If you remember what Jesus says, outward religion but inward pride. Whitewashed tombs is what Jesus calls these people. And ultimately, we see Jacob, Israel, crying out to the Roman government to crucify the Son of God. So don't let anyone tell you God loved Jacob because he knew Jacob would be better than Esau. Esau couldn't have done worse than Jacob did. That Jacob would eventually choose to love God because Jacob rejected and crucified God come in human flesh. And don't let anyone tell you God loves you or me because He knows we, He knew we would somehow be better than someone else. We're more worthy. That you would eventually choose to love Him because without His intervention in our life, 
you would still be, as the Apostle Paul says clearly, dead in your sins. You would be continue in your rebellion against God. But for some uh, mysterious, only God knows reason, Jacob I loved. Gloria I loved. Sean I loved. Jim I loved. Michael I loved. And that love for his people results in God's plan of redemption. Second truth about God. First, God loves his people, resulting in God saves his people. We are sinners by nature, no ability to save ourselves. So what can we do? Absolutely nothing. We need a Savior. And that Savior was promised all throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. This is the best news you could, have, you could ever hear. Malachi 3.1, another promise. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God himself is coming. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, whose name means the messenger of the Lord speaks, prophesies that God will send a messenger to prepare the way before him. The last prophet of the Old Testament prophesies the first prophet of the New Testament, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Savior, Jesus Christ. Malachi says, I will come Malachi says he will come to the temple because he would become this perfect sacrifice for uh, for his people. John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God. He said about Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would come to his people. He would live a sinless life, a life that none of us could live. He would die in our place and he would be raised in victory over sin and death. And that's the only way that we who by nature are sinners can be saved. Through trusting in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the Old Testament. That through Abraham's descendant, specifically through Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And we're, we're one of those families. We're part of that promise. That's what we celebrate today as we come to the communion table That through the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus Christ, forgiveness and salvation might, might come to each of us. I say might because uh, we have two options. One option. I don't recommend this. Prideful option. Continuing in your sin. Now that might look different for different people. It might look like self-indulgence. It might be clear, oh, that person is not pursuing uh, uh, Jesus. He's not giving his life to the Lord, just living it up here in this world, do, doing whatever they can to gain the pleasure of this world, doing things the way they want to do, outwardly, in contempt, rebelling against Christ. Or, it might look like self-righteousness, inwardly rebelling by trying to earn your own way, overcoming your own sin, trying your hardest, yet failing to live a good, decent life. That's option one, self-indulgence or self-righteousness, both resulting in continuing in your own sin. But the other option involves humbling yourself before God, crying out to Him for salvation 
from your sin, knowing that it's only by God's grace through faith that you can be saved. Christ saves you from who you are, a sinner. He clothes you in His his righteousness. It's not your righteousness, it's His righteousness. And He gives you His Spirit so that the transformation of who you are can begin and continue on. That you can, in His power, overcome sin. Not by trying harder. Not by trying harder. Not by trying harder, but by surrendering to the Spirit's work in your life. You see, sometimes, well, I don't say so, a, a, a lot of the times, and I'm speaking about myself here too, we Christians think that after we're saved, then it's time for us to take over, to try harder, to overcome our sin. Thanks for saving me, Jesus, but step back. I got it now. Well, that's crazy talk. It's folly. And it's why I believe uh, many of us continue to struggle in sin. Because it will never be about you trying harder. It's only by allowing, by calling upon, by submitting to the power of God's Spirit living in you that you will receive transformation, that you'll be, your heart will be changed, that you'll ever have lasting, real victory over your sin. Yes, we must fight to have victory over our sin, but we fight in the power of the Spirit. Fight to love God more than sin, that sin might become bitter in your mouth. So, as we come to the communion table this morning, I'd encourage you, even even beg you, to consider your options. If you've never, if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, if you have not humbly cried out to Him for salvation, then do that today. Today is the day of salvation. Receive the salvation that God offers you through Christ Jesus. Be born again in Christ Jesus. And for those who've already trusted in Christ, I would call upon you this morning to humbly submit yourself to God. To cry out to His Spirit to transform your life. To give you a heart that hates sin, your sin. To give you legs and feet that run from sin like you you run from Satan himself. To give you arms to embrace your loving Heavenly Father. So as the worship team comes, as the ushers come forward, let's just take a minute. Silent prayer. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. Thanking Him for His death on the cross. Confessing our sins. Receiving forgiveness. Asking Him for the transformation. For the power of the Spirit to work in our lives. Let's pray. Just pray silently.